Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. So it's summer, and we are uh, changing the format of worship a little bit over at the No Water Methodist Church, and uh, that means that we, uh, at least for this summer, are going to be leaving the Revised Common Lectionary behind and just reading through some books of the Bible. So uh, usually in the podcast, when we're um, reviewing the previous Sunday's message, we're going between four different readings. This time, we are just doing one reading at a time. Um, and so uh, for today's episode, just talking through Philippians chapter 1, next week's episode is going to be Philippians chapter 2. So I read a little bit, I talk a little bit, uh, the congregation uh, engages a little bit with with questions or not pushback yet, but they can. So anyway, um, if you already know Philippians, then hopefully you'll enjoy this quite a bit. If you don't know Philippians very well, then you're going to know the first chapter pretty well at the end of this podcast episode. I want to thank you for your continued support of the church, continue to pray for us, and engage in the work and ministry that we're doing. Most of the problems seen in the church today just come from people being unfamiliar with God's words, so we're not going to be a part of that problem. Enjoy your time in the Word with us. Before we move in today's time in the Word, I just want to briefly acknowledge uh, we have Cindy and Terry with us online with Gwen and Roberta and George, Joanne, Margie, Sandy. I think that's all. If there's anybody else with us online, go ahead and sign on and just let us know you're with us and that you're worshiping with us. We're about to turn to the book of Philippians, which of course uh, talks about the importance of being of one heart and mind, unified in, in one faith. So let's grab our pew Bibles. My hope is that, you know, we have the projection, not so that everybody can be staring at screens like in that old Macintosh commercial. We just know some people can't read out of the the printed book, so we want to have this here as an option. But it's important to me, the reason I'm doing this, I want to be empowering you to go home and read the Bibles on your own and feel comfortable enough to do it. Uh, as, As I've been here for seven years, I've had a lot of conversations with people about reading the Bible, and one of the things that's become clear to me is a number of people are not at all comfortable reading their Bibles. Um, You're comfortable coming to worship and hearing a sermon, but when you're alone at your home, you're not picking up your Bible, making your way through, and your only exposure is um, here. And that's not good enough. Uh, That's not good enough for anybody, and it's not that we ever can be good enough, but it's, um, we need to up the standard. And so I wanted to walk through with you just the first chapter today. I know it says chapters one and two, but I did this in Delaware. There's no way I'm making it to chapter two today. It begins on page 1822 of your pew Bibles. Format here is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be similar, but I want y'all feeling comfortable piping up if I'm not being clear, if you have a question, if you have a, a polite correction, unless you're Sarah Beth, she can correct me rudely. Um, but everybody else, uh, let's my goal is that for the remainder of this time we have 25 more minutes together that we spend our time just in chapter one of philippians and when you get out of worship today you feel like you understood the first chapter of philippians 
Do you think that's a realistic and fair goal? Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. It has this introduction for us. Let's just look at the introduction in the book. It's not going to be projected. The letter to the Philippians was written by Paul when he was in prison in Rome about A.D. 60. The church in Philippi had sent Epaphroditus to Paul with a gift. While Epaphroditus was in Rome, he became sick, and the Philippian Christians were worried about him. After he was better, Paul sent him back to Philippi with this letter. Paul reveals his love for the Philippians throughout this letter, the most personal one of all his letters written to a church. Paul thanks the Philippians for their love and helpfulness. Even though Paul was writing from prison, his letter is full of joy. The words joy or rejoice are used 13 times. Paul gives his own testimony to the meaning of his present life when he writes, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we're going to hear that verse in a minute. As in other letters, Paul encourages the people and instructs them to live in harmony with others and obedience to God. So spoiler alert, that's the themes that we'll encounter here. Let's just do the opening salutation here. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a fancy opening salutation. Nowadays we just have dear so-and-so. This is much more common in the ancient world. Here's who's writing. It's Paul and Timothy. Remember, Timothy was his wingman after things fell apart with him and Barnabas. He and Timothy have been traveling around the Eastern Roman Empire. And I should have thought to have a map on here, but you have the Mediterranean Sea, and then this is east for you. The whole eastern part speaks Greek. You have modern-day Turkey, Greece, uh, Israel, Judea, uh, on down. But they've been in the northern region, and that's where Philippi is. Philippi is modern, uh, I forget if it's Turkey or Greece, but that's uh, a city back there, and then... And a church has been planted there. And remember, a church is not a building. It's a group of people under the lordship of Christ Jesus, right? They may or may not have had a building. They probably had somebody's house that they were meeting in that had been repurposed for worship. We found a lot of those archaeologically. The earliest church buildings were people's homes where they then knocked down some walls and created the right spaces. So he's writing to the, the body of believers that assembles in Christ's name and has been born again in Christ Jesus in Philippi. It says, we're writing to all... God's holy people in Christ Jesus of Philippi. So that's, that's the church there. And together with the overseers and deacons. Overseers is presbuteros, presbuteroi, uh, that's elders. That's what office I'm filling in this church. And then deacons, diakonos is servants, um, waiters, people who are taking care of the body. So that's who it's addressed to. These two guys who have already been at the church, built up the church, helped plant that church, are now writing to them and they give a, a, a blessing grace and peace to you from god and the lord jesus christ pretty basic okay let's move on verse three i thank my god every time i remember you does this sound like a happy letter it is it's his happiest letter we already heard this i thank my god every time i remember you and all my prayers for all of you i always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he's happy with them. He's blessing them. He's saying, I thank God for you in prayer all the time. Why? 
because they tell good jokes when he's around? What's the reason he gives here? He spells it out because of their partnership with him. Partnership doing what? Being in the gospel. Being in the gospel. Remind me, what does the word gospel mean? I didn't see who got it, but somebody got it. Good news. God, good in Middle English, God and good were the same word. Spell is something you say or a message. Good message, good news. So they have been good partners with him in the gospel until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So who began a good work in the believers in Philippi? Is he talking about their church planter? Who, who began a good work in them that he's saying, he's going he's gonna to complete it. He's going to bring you to the end goal. Well, let's think about your salvation. Who, who called you out of the darkness into the light of God? God did. Jesus. Yeah. So I believe that's who he's talking about here. You know, who, who began a good work in them? You could say maybe the church planter, but then he says, the one who began a good work with you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And then he's going to follow up talking about being pure and holy and that being the completion. Another person can't make you be pure and holy. Another person can't save you. Another person can't make you love Jesus. It's only Jesus who does that. So he's saying, I have every confidence in you. God started this good work. He's actually not saying, I have confidence in you. He's saying, I have confidence in God. He started this good work in you. He's going to bring it to completion. I know you feel like you're still sometimes struggling with your sins too much. I know you're not perfected in faith yet. God is going to perfect you. He will. He can and he will. Is that a nice promise to give? Only if you want to be holy. If you don't want to be holy, that's like a curse. Please don't make me be holy. I love my sin. Please don't cleanse me of whatever sins I love. But if you are tired of your sins, then the promise here is that God can and will take your sins from you and, and, and purge you and cleanse you. He will complete that work that he began in you when he saved you. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. So is this emotional language? Hey, he's talking about his heart. Yeah, this is, he does talk about a lot of head stuff, but for him, a lot of this is, is heart stuff. He says, you are in my heart. And he doesn't mean that in a cellular level, but he means that in a real spiritual level. The notion is that what they do spiritually impacts him spiritually, right? All of you share in God's grace with me. When we are individual believers, we're actually tied together in a larger body that we are influenced by and we influence them. What's that body called? Say it loud. You know it. The church. The church is a group of people who are bound together in covenant relationship and we are affected by one another. And that's why it hurts so much when someone who was in fellowship with us falls away. It's because their faith or lack of it affects our faith or lack of it, right? And that's why it feels so good when other believers in the church are doing really well. Like whenever Bob's back is no longer bothering him. That feels good for me. I, I know I'm not the only one who feels better knowing that he is not sitting there in chronic agonizing pain. You know, we share each other's burdens. We share each other's victories. That's the name. That's, that's the name of the game of the church, right? And here he's saying, 
y'all are walking in faith so well that even though I am miserable in prison, I am just so happy. And do you think that he is lying? I really don't. Now, we have a hard time understanding exactly where he's at here because we live in the 21st century where our prisons look a certain way. Our prisons have heating and air conditioning, unless you're in Las Vegas. I think it was their sheriff who makes them live outside. Man, he's mean. But generally speaking, prisons have heating and air conditioning. You have TV that you can watch. They bring you food. They get you your uh, drugs that you need to stay chill. They take, they take care of you. In the ancient world, nope. They had guards that would abuse and beat you, sometimes for reasons, sometimes not. They would literally put you in chains behind bars. Uh, they didn't feed you. They didn't have a budget for food. People would have to beg and scrimp and starve in prison, or they would have to, you know, here, Paul, a messenger from the church in Philippi, Epaphroditus was the one who brought him uh, goods to keep him alive in prison while he was sitting there. And then you're surrounded by other prisoners who, I mean, nowadays we're very concerned with keeping the prisoners away from each other and helping them behave. That was not a concern in the ancient world. And we're about to find Paul was getting picked on. It is a miserable situation that he's in. No one on the inside is really looking out for him, but he's giving thanks. Can you imagine? I'm spoiled. My van didn't start today, and I'm up in a tizzy. This, this is so much worse than my van not starting, and Paul is writing and giving thanks for them. Verse 8. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Man, if somebody was writing me like this, I'd feel like they loved me. Verse 9, and this is my prayer. That your love may abound, that means multiply, grow, more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Why? Just for the sake of it? No. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. See, there's that purification language, sanctification language. So he's saying, I'm praying for you, I'm hoping for you that your love grows, abounds, multiplies, so that you grow in discernment and you can do what's good and you can be purified and found blameless. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So everything has a purpose. He's not writing to them just for the sake of it. They're not sharing in this bond in Christ just for the sake of it. All of it has a purpose. A telos is the Greek word, a, a, a goal it's driving at, and that goal is holiness. He's saying, you guys are doing a great job walking in righteousness, declaring God's gospel, seeking holiness, and because of that, you're helping me in my faith. I want to bless you. You guys are blessing me, and we're all aiming together at God's holiness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do it, right? Because this book is not just about them. It's about us, right? The condition, Paul, does, are all Paul's letters happy? The majority, actually, he's not very happy. He'll say, y'all are doing some good things, but you're really screwing up here. And if you've been following the, the daily Bible reading thing that we've been doing, if you didn't pick up one of these, we have them in the back. I want you to pick them up. We did uh, Galatians a few days ago, and man, that book is rough. He is just tearing into them. And it's because they're not doing a good job walking in righteousness together. They're not doing a good job building one another up and seeking the Lord together. That's the condition of Paul's love. He's not writing them saying, oh, you guys are so special. You're such good people. You know, you just, you really, you know, I just, I have a special feeling about you in my heart. No, he's saying, I love you. 
because you're seeking righteousness. And so here's, I'm a, I have a happy letter for you. I'm going to build you up rather than tearing you down. That's what's going on here. Verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Advance me, move forward. The gospel is actually helping. Now, let's, let's think about, you may or may not know the ancient context here, but Christianity was at one point just a little cult. They called it a cult that started spreading among the lower income people of no estate throughout the Roman Empire. And the Romans hated it. Oh boy, they hated it. They hated them for the same reason they hated the Jews. They refused to worship the gods. Throughout the Roman Empire, there were thousands of gods. Everybody was welcome to worship whatever gods they wanted as long as you had to pray, for, pray to the emperor, acknowledge his genius, pray to his genius. But if you prayed to the emperor and you embraced local gods, you could worship whatever gods you wanted. But these Jews came on the scene and then Christians saying, nope, there is only one God. You are serving idols and demons and we will have nothing to do with that. In fact, we will even die not to do it. You guys are dead in your sins. You need to be saved from your wickedness. Otherwise, you will burn in hell and you will deserve it. That was their witness to them. They were hated for it. And yet they grew. Not only were they hated for it, they were beaten up for it. They were persecuted for it, arrested for it. They were fired from jobs for it. Their relatives were abandoned and abused for it. They were even killed for it in uh, the gladiatorial games or summarily executed in, in trials. And yet, even though all this is going on, Christianity grew from a tiny little sect to eventually 10% of the empire till eventually the whole empire said, hey, this God is clearly with this movement. And then they ended pagan worship and things went crazy after that. But they were crazy before that too. We don't need to get into that. The thing is that we need to focus on here is Paul has been arrested when you get imprisoned, when you get arrested, is that something that makes a good case for you, that makes you look good to other people? If you were a Christian, an upstanding Christian gentleman, and you got arrested and put in jail over here at the county courthouse, would people think, oh, what a good Christian man. Y'all would be so mad at me if I got arrested. Half of you would be mad with me, and then half of you would be outside with your guns going, we need to take care of this right now. But I'm going to do my best not to get arrested. I don't know what I would do. I shouldn't have done that scenario. But to be arrested is really a shameful thing in our culture. And it was a shameful thing in their culture, too. And yet Paul is saying, it's actually a good thing that I got arrested because it's benefited the cause of Christ. Well, how so, Paul? Let's listen to this. Verse 13. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So he's in there and he's not staying quiet about Jesus. He's talking about everybody knows he's there for Jesus. Verse 14, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You would think getting arrested would put a chilling effect on believers, right? Oh, he just got put in prison for talking about his faith. We need to be quiet for a time. He's saying, no, it's actually emboldened them to make them more brave, more outspoken about their faith. That doesn't make much sense, does it? Verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. So there seem to be guys in prison that are messing with him, picking on him, and they're preaching Christ, but they're doing it to mess with him. They're doing it out of envy and rivalry, he says. Verse 16, the latter, the good ones, out of goodwill, do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former, the ones picking on him, 
preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I think what he's saying here is, I've got a situation where I'm getting picked on, but Jesus still looks good, so this is a win. Y'all hear it that way? He is completely not interested in himself. He is not trying to avoid pain. He's not trying to keep a good reputation. His only agenda is, how does this benefit Jesus? Can you imagine living in such a way? Is that the standard for me and you, that, that our lives really just need to be about what, what benefits the cause of Christ? Or are we allowed to, to be kind of selfish sometimes? What do you think? Actually, that's a, that's a bad subtle question. I don't want to make anybody look bad. The, the biblical expectation seems to be, you remember whenever Jesus' ministry was doing well and John the Baptist was kind of getting shoved aside? John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that he can increase, right? That was the phrase. And that's how you and I walk with the Lord. When we come to him, of course, we are the Lord of our own lives. We're, we're dead in our sins. But when he becomes our Lord, then our lives are no longer about us anymore. We don't do what we want. We don't listen to the desires of the flesh. We don't follow the instructions of our minds. We follow only our Lord. What does Lord mean? Boss. We follow our boss, Jesus. If it benefits him and his cause, I do it. If it doesn't benefit him and his cause, I don't do it. And if it means that I'm unhappy in my spirit, then that means my spirit is separate from Jesus and I need to do more work. I need to be in prayer more. I need to be seeking him more in his word because I need to do well when Christ is doing well. Let's see, where were we? <clears throat> I think we're in, at the end of that uh, paragraph in verse 18. So the second part of that verse. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So he's in a bad place right now, a place of great anguish and suffering. He's saying, I know that God is going to use this nasty, awful, terrible thing for my good. We live in a culture for whom that is crazy talk. If it's painful, if it feels bad, if it looks bad, it is bad. It is not of God. God cannot, he will not turn it around for your good. And he certainly isn't the one behind it. The biblical perspective here seems to be, yeah, sometimes you're going through something awful and God has designed it. He has put you there so that you will be brought out of there to a place you couldn't have got to had you not been there. And if you reflect soberly on your life, there have been times when you were in the valley of the shadow of death and you came out of it and you were given such a grateful, thankful spirit. You were given strength you never knew you had. You would have never chosen to go there on your own, but the Lord took you there and he got you out of there. Can anybody say thanks be to God? And that's what Paul's going through here. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. Now that's weird. Getting arrested is being ashamed, isn't it? Being persecuted for your faith. He's not talking about being ashamed in the eyes of the world. He seems to be talking about denying Christ. And here's why I say that. Let's go on. But we'll have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. In prison, he's awaiting trial to see if they're going to kill him is the thing. And there's a real temptation when someone's going to kill you to recant on your faith and say, actually, this Jesus thing, that's, uh, you know what, that's not so important. I would really just prefer to live. Thank you very much. He's saying, I, my prayer right now is that I can stand strong, be courageous, so I do not give in. I do not back out. 
Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's, that's what, what's on our bulletin, isn't it? Is that the one we had? Yes, Philippians 1.21. It's a phrase that's kind of hard to understand until you meditate on it. While he's alive, he is in Christ. He has God's Holy Spirit. He's tied together with God's Holy Spirit. However, if he dies, he gets to be in the presence of Christ himself. And that's better. And he's saying, so really, even though I'm suffering right now, I'm in a win-win scenario. They kill me, I win. They let me live, I win. A lot of people with worldly eyes would look at Paul and go, man, you're a chump. You're in a terrible place. But he's going, no, I'm in a great place. God's with me, and there's no one who can take me out of his hand. I am set. Can you imagine having such confidence, such comfort in such a miserable situation? I'm a weak man. I, my faith is not this strong. God, give me the faith of Paul. I need that. Verse 22, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to de depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. He's saying, if I go away and be with Jesus, I can't encourage you in your faith anymore. So for your sake, I think I'm going to stay. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. He's saying, if I stay alive, that's what I want to do so I can encourage you and we can get back together in the future and we can just rejoice in how good and powerful God is. Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Does this sound like he's telling them to live holy lives? I don't know what else it could mean. When you talk about conduct, you're talking about how you live your life. Worthy of Christ. He's saying live that life seeking purity, seeking righteousness. Whatever happens, whether they kill me or let me live, keep behaving like gospel people. That's what he's saying. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit. How is he going to know that they're standing firm? If they continue to live in righteousness. If they start getting angry and acting like worldly people, then all is lost. He says, maintain your righteousness. And then if I can never be with you again, I can still rejoice because you know what's important. You and I have the same heritage in Christ. I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened. You see how much language there is about not being frightened, about having courage, about being bold? That's something throughout the scriptures, but here it's in the context of persecution. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. What is a sign to them? What was he just talking about? Their courageousness. Their courage. Yeah, courageousness, that's not a word. Their courage. He's saying, you being courageous in the face of persecution is a sign to them, your persecutors, that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to, you see what that word is? What's that word? Suffer. What's that word? Suffer. Vicky's the only one going to say it. Y'all aren't excited to suffer, are you? To, truth be told, I'm not either. But here, He's being very clear. When we are in Christ, it's not for worldly pleasure or gain. 
we follow him to suffer like he suffered. For it has been granted you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So he, we are just now encountering the believers are not living the high life in Philippi either. He's suffering mightily where he's imprisoned, but they're being persecuted where they are. And he's saying, look, where I am, I'm blessed. And actually where you are, you're blessed. And we need to share in that blessing together. If you, got, you start feeling persecuted and victimized, if you start giving in to your self-pity and feeling like victims, you're not going to make it. You're going to get bitter. You're going to give up on your righteousness. You need to know that God is active in your suffering, and he is going to use it to bless you. The one who started a good thing in you will bring it to completion, but you have to stand firm. He is lovingly affirming them for what they've done. He's saying you need to keep doing it. I know it feels like it's not working. They're really persecuting us. You have to keep doing it. It's just now noon, so I'm going to transition now to just a closing reflection question, series of questions. How much of your faith is about pleasure and how much of it is about embracing the suffering of Christ? Do you find that your feelings of closeness to Jesus are not as strong when you're in pain? There are a lot of people who, whenever they're going through a hard stage, they fall away from the church. When actually that's the time that they need to hold to Christ all the more, right? He knows our suffering. We need to draw close together and share in each other's pain and encourage one another, admonish one another. That's the whole point of the church. But if we only engage when we're already in good shape, then that means our faith, we're fair-weather friends. You know what a fair-weather friend is? Someone who's only around whenever it's good for them, when it feels good for them. You want a true friend who's at your side whether or not they're in the mood, whether or not it feels good. And that's what Jesus deserves from us, is it not? We sung for the first half of worship about how powerful God is. Is God powerful? Can he save us from hell and damnation? And I believe he will, but there are conditions set on this thing. And that's why I think we need to keep marching through the word of God together. We've been hopping around. I think some people might get the illusion that there's some things in the cracks that aren't there. Or maybe they're just imagining that I'm, I'm, I'm painting a portrait to my own liking. We're just going to walk through Philippians, and you're going to see the coherent picture of God's glory and power, of our temporary suffering and persecution, and of how sure God is to bring us out on the other side in a most blessed place. And that blessed place in the future impacts how we understand the present. Now, it could be that there's just nobody ever going to hate you. You stand firm by Jesus, and everybody loves you for some reason. But if you're really living... What the Bible points to, there are going to be people who don't like you. There are going to be people that pick on you. There are going to be people that try and make your life miserable. And at that point, who do you become when someone picks on you? Who do you become when you're put in a situation that's miserable? You wake up miserable, you go to sleep miserable. You wake up the next day miserable, you go to sleep miserable. People hate you. Who do you become then? Do you grow in righteousness and go, hey, this is something that brings me closer to Jesus? Or do you get bitter and worldly? and turn away from your Lord. Have I painted those two opposite approaches clearly enough? Because most people are over here. Most people, most people sitting in pews, whether they see it or not, are prosperity gospel Christians who only want to follow Jesus when life is good. But the Bible is pushing us to be these Christians that follow Jesus even when he leads us 
into the valley of the shadow of death. Even when we're suffering, persecuted, picked on, even when we might be killed for our faith. And I know that doesn't sound like a realistic thing in America nowadays. God willing, we'll never come to that kind of persecution. But if it does, what kind of Christians is Jesus going to have here with us, with you? So we'll continue meditating on that next week as we spend more time in Philippians. Um, I want to urge you, you're going to do what you're going to do, but I want to urge you to go home and read through Philippians chapter 1 on your own in quiet and just connect all those ideas together for yourself on your own. And if you really want to be a star student, go and do it once a day, every day till next Sunday, and then we'll pick up together. Um, You get out of reading the Bible what you put into it. You get out of it what you put into it. If you're only doing it on Sunday morning because the preacher's making you, you are not going to get much out of it. If you take it up as something that's about you and your household culture and who you are, it will bear so much fruit for you that you'll be embarrassed you ever had a lifestyle without it.